0: Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. This week on the podcast, we're bringing you an excerpt from Everyday Evangelism, a class we held just this past weekend, featuring author and guest teacher Randy Newman. It was an excellent class. For me, I was there. One of the best parts of it was just hearing the affirmation from him that uh, no matter how often you— get into spiritual conversations with people who don't understand your faith or people who don't share it, it's not going to get easier. And giving me permission to just feel a little uncomfortable about these conversations was really empowering. Uh, I hope that the excerpt we share is going to be encouraging to you as well. It was a long class. It was about three hours but it went really quickly. There was a lot of discussion, a lot of Q&A, even some kind of little mock conversations or exercises he uh, had us do just to get used to uh, conducting conversations a little bit differently, used to learning how to go deeper in conversation with people than we're normally inclined to. Uh, It was really exciting, but not all of it translates really well to being recorded. So the opening part is what we're sharing today. It's the first 45 minutes of the class. It's uh, Glenn's introduction and then a little bit of of broad overview and a couple quick Q&A parts before the more dynamic conversation and discussion sections got started. Uh, If you feel like you're missing out, um, sorry about that. Uh, But we do have other classes coming up that you don't have to feel like you miss out on. Our Gospel Perspectives series of classes starts up again this Sunday. Um, This is a series of classes we have that are sort of overviews of essential topics in the Christian faith and then other kind of interesting ways that the Christian faith can touch on our day-to-day lives here in modern-day D.C., Um, There are going to be classes most Sundays, starting at 4 p.m. at Calvary Baptist Church, just before Grace Downtown's 5 o'clock Sunday worship services. We're kicking it off this Sunday with the Gospel and Harry Potter, talking about the ways in which uh, the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and eventual return can change the way uh, or influence the way we look at and interpret um, and respond to the major stories we see in pop culture, with a particular focus on the Harry Potter books. Uh, It actually might be about the movies, I'm not sure which. Either way, this Sunday, The Gospel and Harry Potter, we have a couple classes coming up after that on the nature of friendship and community in the Christian tradition and one coming up at the end of the month on the gospel and politics. So mark your calendars. Visit us a little bit early on Sundays from 4 o'clock to 4.45. And now to introduce Randy, here's Glenn.
1: Well, we are excited uh, to have with us Randy Newman. And uh, Randy really has a a wide and long uh, teaching ministry. Uh, He's teacher and writer at Connections Point. He's also a senior uh, teacher with the C.S. Lewis Institute. Uh, Randy also teaches at colleges, seminaries um, in the area and around the country. He was with Campus Crusade for 30 years. Um, He uh, studied music. We actually have this in common. We both have music ed degrees. He was at Temple and then uh, got his doctorate at Trinity International University. And intercultural studies, um, and an author of a lot of books, um, questioning evangelism, corner conversations, bringing the gospel home, and this is hot off the press. Randy was born into a Jewish family in New York, and has a lot of great insight. This is engaging with Jewish people, and it's just come out this week. I'm holding wow. it's it's hot. I mean, <laughs> literally, it's so new. Um, but the thing that um, I think really drew us with that great resume was uh, Randy's, I've listened to people teach evangelism for decades, uh, for decades. And we had Randy come and teach a group of our leaders last year, and it was just so compelling, so compelling, the manner in which he does it, uh, how he comes at it and approaches it as a learner himself. Uh, On top of that, uh, he's just so fun to listen to. So we feel delighted that Randy's here with us and that you're here. I think you're in for a great morning. You're not gonna feel like, why did I wake up to do this? I promise you that. Uh, So I'm gonna open us with a word of prayer and then I'll invite Randy up to get us going. God, we thank you for your heart for people. We're evidence of that here in this room. That you, uh, from the very beginning, have pursued, pursued people that have been uh, running from you. We thank you for your creativity, your patience, and for the model we have in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would equip us uh, this morning to be men and women that love what you love, uh, love your mission, love the vision of your global and ethnic bride help us uh, this morning. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Let's welcome Randy.
2: I started coming up the aisle and I saw my good friend Kevin after stand up. I thought, he's leaving already? <laughs> <laughs> he usually sticks around longer. I mean, people don't usually leave that quickly, but no, good to see you again. And it's great to be with you. It really is. Um, uh, I'm almost always amused that the Lord keeps using me in evangelism training things because I'm such a reluctant evangelism evangelist, and and maybe that's exactly why I'm 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 a fellow struggler. At least I hope that's good news to you. I'm a reluctant evangelist. I'm I'm one who, well, some of you have heard me before. Perhaps have heard. Um, I always used to hear these speakers get up and talk about how they loved to witness on airplanes. That was always where all evangelism took place, it seemed. High up, close to heaven, captive audience, where were they gonna go? And I remember hearing these speakers always talk about how they always prayed for the person who was going to sit next to them and I always just felt so guilty because I can vividly remember praying many, many times for an empty seat um, some of the worst, most discouraging words I hear when I get on a plane is, "We're expecting a very full flight." Oh no, there's going to be people here. So, um, so now some of you are really thinking, "Why did I wake up to come to this?" But we've locked the door and you can't get out. Uh-huh. So, um, I want to I want to talk this morning about how, how do evangelistic chickens do evangelism? How do reluctant evangelists do evangelism? Um, the great news that I want to announce is that God uses us in really profound and powerful, amazing ways. Evangelism occurs at this just intriguing intersection of what people do and what God is doing. What people do that's very human. They listen. They ask questions. They engage in conversation. They they point people to other people or articles or books that do a job much much better than they can do. They just uh, express love and concern for people. That's very human. But then there's also this divine drama of God working in people's lives, of, of orchestrating things almost in, in unlikely, improbable ways. So more than anything, I'm hoping out of this morning you come encouraged with, okay, I can, I can do these things, and I can ask God to do this, and ask God to work so that these things intersect. Um, Let me me share a very recent witnessing opportunity I had to give you kind of a picture of this. Um, I still uh, do campus ministry at George Mason University. I work with professors, and we have this uh, weekly event. We call it the Faculty Forum, and professors come together, and we discuss different things of how faith and scholarship intersect. And we had our very first meeting two weeks ago, and nobody showed up, except me. I was sitting in this empty room, and I thought, wouldn't this be a lovely photo to take and send to all of my financial supporters? Um, (laughs) And then finally, one professor did come, and he and I had a lovely chat for the next hour, but nobody else came, nobody. Uh, So again, it was a nice conversation, and my prepared notes, I said, well, maybe next week. And, uh, And then, by the way, things did improve the next couple of weeks, but... After we were all finished, I went downstairs to the food court, and I was just feeling miserable and kind of sorry for my... What am I doing? Wasting my time? I've been here for so long. And this guy comes up to the table and goes, you mind if I join you? There's not an empty seat around here. And I thought, okay, this is probably like a witnessing situation, Lord. Uh (laughs) And I was feeling kind of Jonah-ish. Like, really? Now? But okay, sure, yes. And the guy's older, and I would have bet money that he was Jewish, and it turned out that he was. I just kind of guessed... And he's one of these retired people who's coming in auditing classes at George Mason. That happens quite a bit. So he sits down, and then right then this woman comes up who's with another ministry, who knows me pretty well. But she doesn't know him, and she just assumes that I'm probably talking to one of the many professors I work with like the one, or I mean, but you know, she, she thinks I have a successful ministry. And so, um, so she comes up and she says to me, she said, you just preached two weeks ago at my brother's church. He thought it was great. And this guy looks over and goes, you preach? And uh, I said, well, yeah, uh, uh, the case, I haven't even met, I haven't even shook hands with this guy and said, hi, my name is. All, the only thing we've had is, can I sit here? There's not an empty seat. Sure, so he sits down. So, I, you know, you preach? And I oh well, yes. And he says, "What do you preach about?" And she says, thinking he knows me, says, "What does he always preach about?" <laughs> <laughs> I thought this isn't going well. <laughs> uh, you, you should prepare yourself because something. And the guy says, "How the blank should I know?" I goes, "I just met guy. In fact, I haven't met." And he reaches his hand and goes, "Yes, my name's Randy." And she just gets this look of oh. <laughs> This is different than I thought. And uh, uh, very quickly, she said, well, why don't I just leave you two to have it? And she ran. I mean, like, <laughs>
1: get away. Ah! Um,
2: so we, you know, launched, you know, so what do you do here? And then this launched this great conversation that went everywhere from uh, Woody Allen to C.S. Lewis to why does life disappoint to how can you be Jewish and believe this stuff? It was wonderful. It was really wonderful. Um, my favorite moment as I recreate the thing is when I said to him, "So, how, I mean, how would you describe your own religious beliefs? And he said, well, guess you could call me a non-practicing Jewish agnostic. And all my mind could think of was, well, what would a practicing Jewish agnostic do? <laughs> how, how do you practice agnosticism? everybody shrug your shoulder I, I don't know right <laughs> just, and I thought don't say that don't say that no no so so all I did say, well that, that sounds interesting can you tell me more and he did so anyway does that help you or hurt you are you are you thinking now why did I come to this um, I, I think evangelism is difficult uh, it hasn't gotten any easier for me even after decades of being involved in this But there has been a dramatic shift in my thinking of, maybe it's always gonna be difficult. And when I had that passing thought, it was liberating. Doesn't make it easy. It just means I approach it in a very different way. For years, all of the people I I heard speak about evangelism or or read about evangelism seemed to say it was easy. And so for at least the first 10 years on staff with Campus Crusade, I kept waiting for it to get easy, and it never did. And I kept thinking, what, what's wrong with me? Why, maybe I'm not filled with the Spirit enough, however that, however you measure that. Maybe I am in the wrong line of work. May I?" And then it was, no, maybe this is difficult. And maybe I need to approach it as, okay, this is difficult. Lord, would you work? Would you powerfully do the miraculous? Will you do the amazing? And that has changed and shifted things. Again, I, I'm still reluctant. I still think it's difficult, um, but God does wonderful, wonderful things. Um, so let's begin by praying for the non-believers that you have in your life right now. I see that you have some of you have notebooks or whatever. Um, maybe you want to jot these down in your phone or something. But but I want you to just take a minute or so to think of who are the non-believers that God has placed in your life already neighbors, coworkers, friends, relatives. Take a few minutes to jot down their names and then we're gonna pray for them. So let me pray once again. Lord, thank you for the names we just jotted down. It's no accident that they live near us or work with us or that you brought them to the surface of our memory right now. Um, Lord, would you work in their hearts to draw them to yourself. Would you make your gospel irresistible? And would you uh, grow our love for you so that we have compassion for them? Uh, we ask for wisdom this morning of next steps to take, and we ask that you guide our time for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, let's start with a short little Bible study. Um, about getting a biblical framework around this thinking about evangelism. Colossians, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. hope you have a Bible on your phone or this old-fashioned thing called hard copy. Colossians, you probably know, or I hope you know, or that you will know. Um, Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Christ the greatness of the Messiah. He's not just a person, he's not just a teacher, he's God in the flesh. And Colossians one has been considered by many people some of the most Christologically rich passages of all of the Bible. So Colossians one talks about the supremacy of Christ, he's God, he has all the fullness in him. And then chapter two of Colossians says that if we are in Christ, we have received fullness. I think verses nine and 10, of chapter two are kind of the theme statement of the whole book of Colossians, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. So the first two chapters are theology about Jesus, about Christ, about his greatness, and about what it means to be in Christ. And then in typical style that Paul does, he he pivots from theology to practice, here's how it starts making a difference in our lives, if indeed we are in Christ. It starts making a difference within our own thinking about how we think about ourselves, where to set our minds and our hearts and our affections above, where we are seated spiritually. Uh, it starts making a difference in how we handle temptations and sin. Start making making a difference in relationships with people. So in the middle of chapter 3, we have this section about how it makes a difference in our relationships with those in the body of Christ in within the church. And then it starts... Uh, within families, husbands, wives, fathers, children, within the workplace. And then he turns to, here's how it can have effect on outsiders. That's where chapter 4, verse 2 begins. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, make the most of every opportunity, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Um, I'm gonna do this very quickly. I just want you to see a couple of pairings in this, four pairings, or maybe it's tensions. The first is the pairing of prayer and proclamation. He starts by saying, devote yourselves to prayer, but then almost immediately says, pray for us too, that God would open up a door. So in Paul's mind, the need for prayer and proclamation fit together, which, in light of what I've already said, I hope that makes sense to you, if we're asking God to raise the dead and open blind eyes, we really need to pray. Uh, So J.I. Packer says in his uh, book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, we need to talk to God about people and then people about God. So we're asking God to work, go before us, prepare, and um, move people. And so that's why Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer and pray for us in our witnessing. He tells us to devote ourselves to prayer, which makes me think that it must be easy to quit. (laughs) Isn't that true about prayer? Isn't it easy to lose heart? Uh, The Gospels have some stories where it says Jesus told them this parable so that they would not lose heart. They would not give up in prayer. It is easy to give up, isn't it? It's especially easy, I think, when we're praying for non-believers. Because sometimes I don't see anything happening. I don't know if this is working. Um, But he tells us, he gives us a couple of uh, helps to keep us devoted or to remain steadfast. He tells us to be watchful and thankful. So the watchfulness, I think, is we start looking to see how God is working and answering that prayer. And thankful, we keep track of a record of how he has answered so that we're less likely to say he never answers my prayer. So if we have a written record, oh, no, no, yes, yes, okay. I still have some places in my journal with blank lines next to them, not yet. But I'm motivated to be devoted and to stay with it um, because I've seen him work. So I want to ask by saying, do you have some kind of system where you're regularly praying for nonbelievers? I won't ask you to show your hands. The implication is if you don't, I urge you to put something together. Maybe a three by five card is a bookmark in your Bible. Maybe it's a certain page in a prayer journal. Maybe it's something visual on the mirror in your uh, bathroom when you're getting ready in the morning or whatever where you're regularly praying for those people. Um, Maybe you had a system and it kind of got lost. Maybe it's time to resurrect it or, or refurbish it. So prayer and proclamation. Second tension is words and deeds. There's a whole lot in this passage about words, right? A door for our message, that sounds like words. Proclaim it clearly, which must mean that there are some words that are not clear. Um, Let your speech be certain kind. Know how to answer everyone. These are words. But he also says to be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. I won't make a big deal about this because if you came to an evangelism seminar on a Saturday morning, I think you're pretty much convinced we need to use words, right? Um, I think you see that well, if it's all words and it's not actions, well, people just dismiss our words. If it's actions that never have words, they probably are not going to connect your actions to the gospel, right? Do you get this? You're a nice neighbor. They have, you have brand new neighbors who move in. You say, let's welcome them to the neighborhood and bring a plate of chocolate chip cookies, which is a great thing. And they move in. They have the chocolate chip cookies. Here's what will not happen. After you leave the chocolate chip cookies, they won't go. I know why they brought those to us. They must realize that God is holy and righteous. But they, even though they're created in God's image and can reflect it, that image has been marred by their sin, their rebellion, their great gulf. It's not as if God's hand is so short that it cannot save, but their sins have made a separation from their God. But God, in his mercy and his grace, sent his son to die as an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation. They probably won't use those words. Um, So I I did this once, and and I, I could see it on someone's face. They were kind of thinking, so do you think we should put tracts between the cookies? Perhaps, although uh, let's keep brainstorming. There might be other methods. Um, Okay, sooner or later we need words. So uh, prayer and proclamation, words and deeds. Uh, Third is this interesting pairing of grace and salt. I think this is one of the greatest challenges for us today, especially. Um, Let your speech be with grace. I think we get that. We need to find ways to articulate the gospel so that it sounds like good news. That it sounds like grace, that it sounds amazing, that it's wonderful that we can know God in a personal way, and we can talk to Him about anything, and that He does love us, and all sorts of positive things about the gospel message. We need to be careful that we don't only talk about that and not talk about sin and rebellion and separation, sure, um, but we need to find ways that people are attracted to the gospel almost in the same, in the way that they might um, become jealous. Um, Short story about my coming to faith. I come from a Jewish background. When I was about 16 or 17, I thought, okay, I've gotta get Judaism right, finally, because it just seemed like God was distant and alien. So on Yom Kippur, my 16th year, I decided I was going to do everything right that year. I was going to fast, I was not going to drive in a car, I'm going to go to synagogue the whole day and pray, I'm going to confess all the sins that they have listed in the prayer uh, book, um, even though I didn't know what they were because they were all in Hebrew, but I figured God knows Hebrew, so I'll confess, and I don't even maybe, I can't remember. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I'll confess all of them. And, and it didn't work. And I walked home at the end of the holiday as the sun was setting and I was thinking it didn't work. God seems just as distant and alien as he was 24 hours ago. And then I, I looked at my shoes and I saw I was wearing dress shoes. I was dressed up because Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year. And I thought, oh man, I, I, I forgot. The rabbis have this ruling that you're not supposed to wear dress shoes on Yom Kippur. You have to wear soft-soled Athletic shoes. I Thought that's why it didn't work. I wore the wrong shoes. Yeah, exactly. And then I and then I thought that's the stupidest thing in the world. You got to be kidding me. That's is, is that the kind of God we're talking about? You got to remember this. Remember this. Remember this. Wear the right shoes. I thought it's got to be some other way. And it was soon after that that I met a group of Christians in a high school youth group from a church, and I got jealous, just like Romans 9, 10, and 11 says I would. But but. It was they knew God in a personal way. And I just was so intrigued that they could pray in English, (laughs) that they could pray about everything. There was one time we were going on a church bus to the beach, and a guy got up front and said, hey, everybody, let's pray. And I thought, in a bus? (laughs) We're going to the beach. And the guy said, thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day. We pray that the bus doesn't break down. I later found out that was a real step of faith. And, uh, and we pray that nobody gets badly sunburned In Jesus' name, amen. And I thought, these people are nuts. <laughs> don't bother God with things like sunburn. But something stuck with, well, maybe you do. Wouldn't it be great if you could know God that well that you could pray about sunburn and parking spots and, wow. So we need to have ways that we talk about our faith that are not cliches, that are not shallow, that are really thoughtful. When I was talking to that guy in the, in the food court, uh, um, uh, George Mason, you know, I mean, he said he was a non-practicing Jewish agnostic. I said, well, you know, so tell me about that. What does that mean? Well, I grew up Jewish, but I don't believe that stuff anymore. And he, and he, said, he said, at one point he goes, I, I pretty much think that life is meaningless. It has no meaning to it. And then he said, of course, of course, I try not to think about that too much.
0: <laughs>
2: and I said, I could see why you would want to keep that out of the periphery. Sure. Um, I said, but you know, I, I, and then I said, you know, I think, I think that probably could describe me at one point in my life. I was pretty sure life was pointless and meaningless, which then sparked the long conversation about Woody Allen and movies. And I said, but you know, I, there was something still nagging, like, no, I think there might be something. And he was listening. And then I talked about C.S. Lewis's chapter on hope in mere Christianity. I said, Lewis said there's, there's three ways you could respond to this kind of disappointment or this idea that life is pointless and meaningless. One is you could just keep tr- ch- chasing after other experiences. Kind of exhausting, isn't it? Yeah. said, or you could become cynical. And he went, yep, that's me. Oh. And I said, well, I think there is another way. He says, what, do, what is it? I said, well, I think that's why Lewis called that chapter Hope. It's this pointer that all of these disappointments mean that we're meant for another world. And then I talked about my experience with music, how it always seemed to promise and yet always failed to deliver. And he was really listening. I mean, when I told him about knowing Jesus has satisfied that, so that I still experience disappointments, but the disappointments are not crushing. The disappointments are almost joyful. It's like, oh, that's right. Rachmaninoff was not supposed to do any more than that. And then I can enjoy Rachmaninoff for what it is, and I do. So we need to find ways that are grace, but we also need to find ways that have salt in them. And salt makes you thirsty for more. Salt um, was used uh, in some rabbinic writings around this time to refer to the wisdom literature in the, in the scriptures. You know how Proverbs sort of like throws out an idea, it's a short little thing, and ooh, that, that triggers a whole lot of other ideas. I think that might be what Paul has in mind when he says that your words need to be seasoned with salt. They need to have, sometimes it's a surprise, sometimes it's a little bit of a sting, sometimes it's, it's the bad news of the gospel. It's, and we need to come up, we need to think through, how is your love of the gospel grace and salt? So maybe, here's one idea, maybe it's, there's something inside me That really is good. There really is. There's something. I I do care about people. I do long for beauty. I do want to do right. And there's something else in me that isn't good. And there's this internal clash. It's in everybody. In In any situation, I can see something that I can gravitate toward gratitude and thanksgiving or whine and gripe and complain. What, what is that? And then I think the gospel resolves that tension because Jesus paid a price to satisfy God's wrath and to show forth his love. I didn't lose you on that one, did I? Okay, so we need to find ways that surprise people, that um, make them go, wait, 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 what do you mean? Here, maybe this is a better example. because it's Tim Keller's, not mine. He's, he, he's, he's pretty good at this stuff. Um by the way he has a brand new book out that came out the same day as my book and I uh, and um my wife said oh that's a shame his sales are going to suffer cuz they're going to be outmatched by yours <laughs> and I said I love my wife
1: <laughs>
2: something tells me Kathy Keller didn't say that to never mind anyway okay so so here's Tim Keller's um by the way does this bother you that I'm interrupting myself and I'm all over the place good cuz it may not get better <laughs> Whew. uh Keller said when, when they first moved to New York City and they started talking to New Yorkers and said they were starting a new church, a, a, a frequent question was, uh, so what, what kind of church are you starting? Are you one of those churches that always talks about hell? Are you one of those hell, fire, and brimstone churches? You know, always talking about flames and fire. And, and, and he wanted to try to figure out, I mean, even by the way the tone of voice, by the way it was asked, it made him think, if I just answer this question kind of briefly with, yes, we do believe in hell, that's the end of the conversation, it's over. Oh yeah, another one of those. So, but, but they, they do believe in hell, he does believe in it, and, and he does take the Bible quite literally uh, you know, in those places. So he, he thought, how, how, do I, how do I answer people's questions? I don't know if he used this term so that it would be salt, so that, but, but he did want to answer it in a way that it would continue the conversation. So he came up with this thing and he started using it and found, oh, this, this sparks some good conversations. He said, well, you know, all those passages in the Bible about flames and fire, he said, I, I think, I think you, you could interpret those as a metaphor. And people went, oh, good, you're not one of those crazy literalists. And then he said, and, and if it is a metaphor, it's a metaphor for something far worse than fire.
1: <laughs>
2: what? And then, what are you talking about? So, well, I, I think fire is just like the, the best image we can come up with, but it's, far, it's worse than that. It's, it's total and complete separation from God that just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. It's people who say to God during this life, I don't really want anything to do with you. And God says, well, okay. But you extrapolate that over return, out through eternity, and it's horrible. That's C.S. Lewis's argument also in The Great Divorce, and I think also Mere Christianity. Now, is that a full explanation of all that we know about hell? No, but it opened up the door so that he could keep conversing about this issue and then talk about, well, you know, here's what else the Bible says about eternity. It's not all about hell. It's also about knowing God for all eternity. So I think we need to do a lot of brainstorming of how can I respond in grace and salt. One more, one more pairing. Um, it's um, uh, reception and rejection. Some people believe, some people reject. Some people listen to what we say and they say, ooh, th- tell me more. We invite some people to a Bible study and they go, sure. We invite some other people to a Bible study and, ah, please, no. Um, uh, we don't exactly have that spelled out a lot in this text other than to say we have a book to the Colossians. Um, it, we wouldn't have a book if some people didn't respond. But some people did. And in fact, he rehearses that a little bit in chapter 1 about how Epaphras came to you and you heard the gospel and you responded. That's why he's writing this letter. But he says in this passage, when I read, that, that he may proclaim this mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Some people rejected his message. In fact, some people arrested him for it. And we know that he got out of prison, but we know that he went back to prison and then that next time he didn't get out and he was killed, he was executed. Um, this gospel message, everywhere it goes in our world, has been received by some and rejected by others. And you just need to prepare yourself for that. Um, if, if anybody says, I have the presentation that always works, it's got to be wrong. Because it didn't work for Paul, always. Or didn't always succeed. Some people listened to Jesus and they said, he's, he's the Messiah. Other people listened to the same words and they said, he's demon-possessed. So, on that list of the people that you jotted down, some of those people may respond, and some people say, nah, 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 nah. I have an older brother and a younger brother. My younger brother responded when I shared some things with him. Well, he didn't at first, actually. He really was, no, no, shut up, don't tell me this. But at one point, he did start getting interested. Um, And then he did respond, and he gave his life to the Lord, and he served in ministry. He still is serving in ministry. He pastored a church in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, the, the drug and prostitution capital of Europe, and had a great ministry there, and now has this ministry training Christians how to reach Muslims. <laughs> I, I guess you don't find that funny. I mean, he, he's Jewish, and uh, uh, so his brother writes books about how to witness to Jewish people here. Never mind. Okay, it's lovely, <laughs> wonderful. That's my younger brother. My older brother has had a steady no for 30 years. Nah, nah, nah. So, some people are going to receive, some people are going to reject. So, do you have questions so far for me? How does this sound so far? Yes?
1: Um, you mentioned a lot about uh, preparing, like not just in prayer, but brainstorming.
0: Mm-hmm. and um, How does that, how does that in with uh, don't
2: think beforehand what you will say? From Matthew 10, is it? Um, is that what you're thinking of?
1: The, I don't know if that's the reference on but the be so
2: right. Do you remember the reference he's talking about? There's a place where Jesus talks to uh, people and say that when you're brought before courts, uh, don't prepare what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you uh, words at that time. So I'm pretty sure it's Matthew 10. Um, well, I'm pretty sure that that context is mostly or entirely about persecution. I don't think it's about evangelism. Because there are other places where Jesus sent people out and he said, here's what to bring, here's what to say, here's how to behave. Um, And I think the New Testament gives us uh, ample instruction about 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give a defense for those. So I think we do need to prepare. I don't think we need to prepare for what we will say when we're being persecuted or thrown into prison or that. That's what I think the context is there. And I think those are these cases where God will give us words. But for knowing how to prepare what to say and how to answer questions and to anticipate what are the questions people are likely to ask me, how could I answer, I think we do need to prepare. So, other questions? Here's a question we're all thinking right now, I'll bet, I'll I'll bet, ready? We're all thinking, what happened to the air conditioning? It, it, It just quit. And uh, am I the only one who's wondering? I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have planted the idea in your mind. Um, can we do anything about... Does yeah. it matter? No, no, no. Okay, I'm sorry. It, it
0: kicks on and off. Oh, all right. So we're not... We're, oh,
2: okay. I'm feeling a little warm, but... Um, anyway, sorry. Other questions about what I was talking about?
0: In
1: light of the certainty of rejection, how do we mentally prepare ourselves... Yes. Uh, especially for the
0: long haul, um, continuing to pray regardless
2: of... Yes. Did you say the resurgency of rejection? Yeah, certainty of... Oh, certainty, certainty. Um, uh, that's a very, very good question. Um, so there's a number of different things that come to my mind. The, the biggest is we need to shift... I think a lot of us have been lulled into thinking, well, this may not go all that badly because for the past... I don't know, maybe hundred years in American culture, people have kind of sort of tolerated Christians. even Even if they disagreed with them, there was this commitment to pluralism or coexisting. And so, okay, sure. And people had kind of a general positive feel about Christians. That has changed dramatically. And we should assume that the promises about people hating us are probably more likely. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you and lie about you and hate you on account of me. I think that's more where we're at today. Um, They're assuming that we're homophobic, anti-intellectual, anti-science, narrow-minded jerks. So I think, um, so a whole lot of it is praying. A whole lot of it is, I think we need to spend more energy um, and this is a prayerful, meditative discipline of thinking about the riches we have in Christ. Um, so that we're more stable and sure, so that when people insult us, it still hurts, but it doesn't hurt quite so much and doesn't throw us. And I don't think that's easy. And I don't think it's as simple as just remembering certain pieces of fact, of information, I think it's intriguing that in Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, when he prays, I pray that um, you, together with all the saints, so it is a corporate thing, will be able to have power to grasp how wide and how long and how deep and how broad is the love of Christ, but that you will have power to grasp. So it's not just information. It's not just cognitive. We need God to work Powerfully in us, so that we have such a deep reservoir of the love of Christ, of how great the gospel is, that we'll be able to handle it when people reject us. So, do you want to follow up uh, with that, or was that helpful at all?
1: That's great.
2: Thank you. Uh, I do think it's going to be difficult, and I do think more and more we need to back up further in our thinking. So, let me do. uh, By the way, um, I'm very excited to use a new app on my phone now to keep track of my parking right across the street. So in 19 minutes and 24 seconds, I'm gonna have to take a short break and go. So prepare yourself in about 18 minutes, I'm gonna have you break up into groups and do some discussion because I'm gonna be doing this. Um, uh, Here's something that I, I wanna give you kind of a visual image about to try to help with this grace and salt. I think the grace and salt mentality means sometimes, very, very often, we need to move gradually. We need to proclaim the gospel incrementally. Here's what I mean. And um, if you could imagine a line suspended in midair here, and uh, on it is the alphabet. Maybe I'll stay. it's, It's back. It's further. It's back here. There's a line on this wall, and you have A, B, C, D, all the way to Z. And this is a spectrum of unbelief. The people you talk to who are unbelievers are somewhere on this spectrum. Um, Z being very, very close to belief. They they have a they have a biblical worldview, even if they couldn't articulate it as such. They believe in God. They know there's something not right. They've even thought a lot about Jesus. And all you need to do is explain a little bit about what it means to be born again, what it means to trust the Messiah, and they're in. Um, A is the most hardened, angry atheist you can imagine. And everybody you meet is somewhere on this A to Z spectrum. Does that make sense, got that? Um, So a whole lot of evangelism strategies were formulated in our country, or even uh, many other parts of the world, at a time when a whole lot of people were already here. They were kind of prepared. They were at letter T. They already believed in God, they believed in, you know, it's probably something I should think about sometime. And so doing evangelism was telling them T-U-V-W-X-Y-Z. It was, can I show you this booklet that explains four truths about what it means to know God personally? Can I draw this diagram that shows this gap, but how Jesus bridged the gap, right? You're familiar with those kind of things? And when you meet people and you get to know them and you talk and you listen and they're here, that's a great strategy. But if they're further down this way, which is where our whole entire culture has come. And by the way, a a problem with this A to Z spectrum is that um, it sounds like I'm saying it's just one dimensional and it's all cognitive and intellectual, but it's not. So if there was some way to make this a 3D kind of model, because there's emotions and social things, um, and so we need to take into account all of that. So, We used, as a culture, we were here, and now we've kind of moved here, and so there's a whole lot of people who, if you were to say something like, um, could I tell you about what it means to know God personally? Now, some people will say, well, yeah, okay. Other people will say, are you kidding? Please. Now, I don't need another religious fanatic in my life. Get out of here. Or worse. Um, and so what we need is strategies and ideas and questions to ask for all sorts of different places and move gradually. I think that guy that I was talking to the other day in the food court was somewhere around here or further here, but I think I may have pushed him a little bit. He did say he wanted to read this book, Mere Christianity, when we left, so I'm hoping that moved him a little bit. But. Um, he certainly wasn't ready. I didn't think for me to take out a, a, a diagram and talk about Jesus's death on the cross. Hope that doesn't freak some of you out. I don't know. We'll talk later. Um, so, um, so even even Tim Keller, who wrote a book. Um, how, how long ago did he write the book? The Reason for God. Is it ten years old already? Um, He wrote this book, The Reason for God, and he articulated reasons why a thoughtful person should believe in God, should believe in uh, the New Testament of the Bible, believe. Okay, he just came out with this book the other day called um, Making Sense of God, and he says in the introduction that he wrote this book, The Reason for God, and it was helpful for some people, but it wasn't helpful for a whole lot of people who weren't even ready to have that conversation yet. He said, um, maybe this was in an interview that he did about that book, people come to faith or think about faith in a rational way, but also in a social way, uh, social, cultural way, psychological, emotional way. And um, he only addressed the rational way in that first book. So he was trying to go after these other things. Why should an open-minded contemporary American consider a a, a religious point of view that is so out of touch with reality that that it's almost 200 years old in its belief about sexuality why should they even consider it so that's that's part of this a to z thing is this making sense so far so i um it used to be that we were trained to start gospel conversations with some starter questions here One of the most popular was, um, if you were to die tonight, how sure are you that you'd go to heaven? Remember this one? Um, It was part of a a group called Evangelism Explosion. Um, Sometimes they expanded it. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Remember this? Well, that assumes a whole lot of common ground, right? That they believe in God, they believe in heaven, they would like to go there, that God is a Verbal God who could ask them a question, and that something they would say would make a difference. Okay, sure. If they if they buy all that, then that's a great question. But if they're here at letter D, sometimes I joke, or where my relatives are, which is negative W. <laughs> somewhere, um, uh, that's just that's a, that is a non-starter question. In fact, I'm pretty sure they, I, they wouldn't even allow me to finish the question. If you were to die tonight, quiet, what, why are you talking about dying? There, there is this Eastern European Jewish superstition that you don't say bad things because then they'll happen to you. So if you, so you start. If you were to die tonight, what? Stop! What, just what is your Christians are always talking about dying tonight. Are always talking about getting hit by a bus? What is it with you guys with buses?
0: It's just
2: it's a weird question. So it's it's not a good letter D question. And so I think we need to brainstorm. What are, what are some starter questions that we, we don't know, you know? So the more general, I think, the better. Um, so some of those starter questions, well, do you ever think much about spiritual stuff? Is, is religion any kind of part of your life? Is, is, does God play a part in your life? How? Now, by the way, I think there's even some prior questions to that of just getting to know people and being a good listener kind of stuff are you into? What do you like to do when you've got a day off? Um, do you read books? What kind of books do you like? What What are some of your favorite authors? Um, have you seen any good movies lately? What kind of movies? What's What's your all-time favorite movie, or what are your top three favorite movies? Those things will tell you a whole lot of where people's worldview is. And then, so, so those are just getting to know you questions, and then starter questions of, well, you ever think much about spiritual stuff? And you listen, because, because, they may tell you something that they're way over here. My younger brother, who I mentioned earlier, the one who was the pastor, and, um, um, he was sitting kind of by himself on his college campus, upstate New York, just thinking, and someone that he kind of knew, not all that casually, started talking to him and said, well, you know, you, you ever think about spiritual stuff? And he said, I think about it all the time. Um, I've been reading the Bible now for the last year. My brother gave me a copy and thought I should read it, and I'm no, <laughs> And he was a Christian less than a month after that. There are other people who you say, do you ever think much about spiritual stuff? Oh, please, no. All right, so what are the big deals in your life? What do you like to think about? What what can we talk about? That's where I still am with my older brother, by the way. He's interested in history. He likes uh, reading presidential biographies. He um, likes to come down from New York to Washington, DC and visit museums and talk about history. So that's what we talk about. And I look for places where the gospel
1: has some sort of implication on those. I'll share more about him in a little bit.